Let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you have appointed for your people to gather around the hearing of the teaching of Christ Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And in the context of our message today, how we ought to understand our standing before God in relation to the experience in our lives as believers. We oftentimes have contrary experiences, frustrations that come because of this life, because of sin, and sometimes we wonder if we are actually saved. And Lord, I pray that we get understanding this morning from the teaching of Romans chapter 5. We honor you, glorify you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, good morning again to everyone who is joining us. We are back to Romans this morning, Romans chapter 5. There's a lot of things to understand, to glean. I have a saying that I coined some years back that weapons of war are made during peace times. You don't want to begin to do research and find the best weapons when you're already at war. It's too late. When you're at war, it's time for fighting. Excuse me. It's time for fighting. So teaching and understanding, listening to messages, understanding the doctrines of salvation, doctrines of Christ, that's your preparation. Because evil times are coming. And you don't want to form new theology when you're in the middle of a storm. You have to already know what these things are. And that is why we labor much with every message to connect as much understanding as God would give us. Yeah, it's, I teach the way that I like to be taught. I like detail. <laughs> detail really helps. It equips us with the ability to pay attention to what people are saying or what they are not saying. Because sometimes people hide behind what they are not saying. And you never really get to know what they, are, what they believe until way later, maybe 10, 15, 20 years later. And you're like, how did I even continue to sit in that church <laughs> if I had known this about them? So we are very purposeful in the way that we do things. We have nothing to hide and we don't have any text of scripture that we are afraid to go to. We don't skip verses. So we'll speak as much as God will give us ability. Romans 5, verse 1 to 5. We have already done a message from this part of the book, but we didn't go much into what the Lord was teaching, so I thought to come back again. Romans 5, 1 to 5, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that's the word of the Lord. We have one title to this message, and it is Rejoice in Sufferings. Rejoice in Sufferings. Greetings to one and all who name Christ according to his gospel. The gospel that he has called me to declare, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace, the gospel that has given us spiritual insight, spiritual eyes into things invisible. You can only peer into the invisible world through Christ Jesus. And the gospel of Christ alone has that ability to cause us to comprehend, to apprehend spiritual things, eternal things, the things of God, only in the gospel. So we're back to the book of Romans, and that means to a lot of theological reasoning. Because the gospel, though simple, has many moving parts that we have to know. We have to understand and believe as those who have placed our hope in Christ Jesus. The gospel that Paul preached is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that the apostle preached even the prophets of old preached Christ through types and shadows. Even Jesus himself preached himself. And in it, or by him, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. And that to say, apart from the works of the law, or human obedience, or human doing of any kind. The righteousness of God, which came by the redemption that is in the blood of Christ. Christ set free a people by way of his own death. His death was the ransom price. So the righteousness that we declare or that the Bible declares is centered around the shedding of blood of Christ. Christ being the messiah, being the propitiation. You see that if you look at the Greek of propitiation, the Greek word that is translated as propitiation, it is also the same that the Old Testament calls the messiah the hilasterion, okay? So propitiation, messiah, they are speaking to the same thing and they are speaking to the satisfaction for the sins of all of God's people. They were fully satisfied 
in the shedding of that blood of Christ. So in this gospel, God has forever settled the matter of how sinners are made right or are considered just or are considered to have fulfilled all that the law demanded of them. This matter of your obedience to God has been settled already in someone else. So the matter is settled. Because the matter of justification from sin is the only real problem that every person born of a woman, born in Adam, contends with. That is your only problem you have, your justification before a holy and righteous God. And of course, the majority of the people in the world are clueless about this very matter. And consequently, they have come up with their own formulas to try and answer this for themselves in a way that satisfies them, but not in a way that satisfies God. God is only satisfied by the way that he has answered the problem for his people. And that means these people, religious people, have a God of their own imagination. And these people, religious people, include, among others, atheists. Because atheists are not atheists. They just worship themselves. (laughs) They are their own God. But in the church world, we may hear about Jesus. There's a lot of people this morning who are talking about Jesus in a sentence. We hear about the cross and even hear about grace. But do not think that people have come to the knowledge of the issue, of the matter of justification, just by the mere usage of these words. To many people, the cross was just an enabler of salvation. And to many, there are still things that one must do before this righteousness of Christ can be accounted to the sinner. You have to do some things. You have to meet some minimum threshold before God comes and says, okay, I think the right time has come for me to impute this righteousness to Paul. And what a person must do, unfortunately, will vary from one assembly to another. But it is all a denial of the one true gospel that is 100% founded on the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ alone, the Christ who said, it is finished. And the righteousness, sorry for the intermission, and this righteousness of the gospel has been transacted representatively for all the elect in the person of Christ. 
And God has done that through what he calls imputation. Because once you have a person who stands in the place of another to accomplish something for the benefit of those represented, then there has to be some principle of imputation. And that is a legal and accounting term. It is central to the gospel transaction. And in imputation, God reckoned, he accounted all the sin debt to the person of Christ. All the sin debt, these words are very important because when you go to Leviticus 16 and read what happened on the Day of Atonement, the text says the high priest confessed all the sins of the people to the sacrifice. He confessed all the sins of the people to the sacrifice, to the victim who was to die in their place. So God reckoned all the sins of the people to the victim, to Christ Jesus, who was to represent us in his death. So Christ essentially was he who was found guilty and thus liable for the consequences, the punishment of those sins to the satisfaction of God and to our benefit. So in Christ, God was satisfied by all that he did, all that he rendered in satisfaction of your sin debt. The sin debt of those that he represented. Just as the high priest in Israel represented the people of Israel, Christ represented a people. It was not just an open-ended representation. It was for a very specific group of people called the elect. And in that work of Christ, God also imputed the merits so established by his obedience to all the elect of all time in a representative way. So this whole matter of salvation was by God's grace, which means it was done freely. This is something that he determined to do, conditioned on himself, on his grace alone. And being of God's grace, it means 100% of the burden to pay the bills of your salvation. To accomplish salvation was from eternity put on Christ. It was always Christ's work to do. And that means the righteousness of the gospel is apart from our own obedience of any kind. And that really drives a lot of professing Christians and unconverted people crazy because they ever want to hear about their own obedience, their own obedience to God. But I'm sorry. 
God has called us to behold the obedience of another, the obedience of the crucified Christ as alone the only legitimate obedience and the righteousness that justified sinners. Salvation then is apart from the works of the law or any form of human obedience. And the righteousness of the gospel is evidenced by faith, by believing. It is not evidenced by not sinning because we stumble in many ways. You may make a resolution to not sin today, but you're going to sin tomorrow. You're going to sin next week, even next year. So what do we then say about your righteousness? Did you lose it? The faith that God has given to the redeemed is evidenced in our looking to the person of Christ, to the crucified, resurrected, and seated Christ. The Christ who is the God-man, God come in the flesh. And that faith giving testimony that the justification of a sinner was already done and accepted. Hence, the Christ who was raised because of our justification. But faith in the crucified Christ and resurrected Christ is not the basis of the imputation of righteousness. Faith comes much later after the real transaction of the cross. The cross was the place. This was the office where Christ signed all the document papers, all the documents of our salvation. They were signed on Mount Calvary by his blood. The cross is along the basis of imputation and righteousness. So cause and effect are very important if we have to be accurate in following the details of the gospel transaction. We have to follow the details. When the Bible talks of faith in the matter of righteousness, it is just saying, by the righteousness of another. My faith is in the righteousness of another. It is not in my faith. It is saying by the righteousness of Christ. And so, the righteousness of faith is another way to say the righteousness that came by the faithfulness of Christ as he obeyed the Father on behalf of his people. Christ Jesus was faithful to the words of the Father, to every jot and tittle 
that the father asked him to perform, Christ came with a list of things that he had to do, that he had to accomplish as he had agreed with the father. And so you hear Jesus in the book of John say, at the very end, that I have finished the work that I was given. I've come to do the will of the Father. And then at the end of his mission, of his ministry, as he is looking to the cross, he says, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. So Christ Jesus was faithful. That's the only way that he could say, I have finished the work. He had unwavering faith towards God, even to the point of death on the cross. Because if you know yourself, we know that we are unfaithful. As those, even as those who believe in Christ, we are unfaithful. That is why the prayer, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. I believe, but still help me to believe. Help thou my unbelief. So our standing is in his faithfulness, not in our faithfulness to him. We are sinners. Brothers and sisters, we are sinners in word, thought, and deed. And we are still in this world. And the writer of Hebrews says this to our unfaithfulness, to the matter of our unfaithfulness. Hebrews 12 verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And that means we sin because we have not resisted all the way to the point of shedding our blood. And that proves our faithful, our faithlessness or our unfaithfulness. But Christ Jesus, in his faithfulness to God, resisted sin to bloodshed. He resisted sin to bloodshed, to the highest point of obedience. So our faith needs to be put in the proper context of the gospel. Our faith does not cause the transaction. The faith of Christ is what caused the transaction because it went all the way to the point of bloodshed. Our faith, as we exercise and experience it, is God-given for us to look to that transaction that was done, finished, and accepted on your behalf by the Father. Yeah? And that was the introduction. <laughs> Trying to get my bearings. We have a wonderful message this morning. If God will grant, 
me ability to speak it and for you to have the ears to hear it. We have a wonderful, wonderful message. So, knowing all that I've just said, this all coming from what Paul has labored from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. It's kind of a summary understanding of the gospel transaction. Paul then says in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul now gives us some discussion on the benefits or significance of being justified and the manner in which we were justified and how that should help us. And that may have come from a question from someone who was objecting to Paul's doctrine and saying, if all that you're saying is true, that we are already reconciled to God, accepted and justified, and that we have peace with God, why then the suffering and frustrations with this life? How does that factor into our present? Paul says, having been justified by faith, having been justified by the faith of Christ, that's past tense, we have been justified by the faith of Christ, by the blood of Christ, by the obedience of Christ, by the righteousness of Christ, justified by the redemption that is in his blood, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is only through Christ Jesus. He is the one who mediates peace between you, the sinner, and God. And there's no other. So the redeemed have peace with God, as a matter of fact. And that peace has come to them because of our Lord Jesus, who reconciled and removed the enmity. It is he who made peace by the blood of his cross. His blood made peace. That's some good blood. <laughs> blood that makes peace. So this is how the redeemed should see themselves before God. Here and now, you have peace with God. God is favorably disposed towards you on your good day as he is on your very worst of days. God signed an eternal peace treaty with all his elect at the cost of the blood of Christ. So the elect, no matter the turmoil that they may be going through or will go through, have peace with God. They possess peace with God. 
Verse 2, Romans 5. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And it is through the same Jesus that we have access into this grace in which we stand. And if you remember the Greek word that is translated as access is prosagog. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Prosagog. I don't know. That's why it's Greek. But this is what it means. It means privilege of approach to a person of high rank. Privilege of approach to a person of high rank. And that was a careful selection of words by the Holy Spirit. Because God would have you and I to understand that access to him is no ordinary matter. Isaiah saw the Lord and said what? Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> I wish I'd brought my camera to take a selfie. No, Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah said, War is me. War is me, for I am undone. I am ruined just by a mere vision of the Lord Jesus. Of the Lord Jesus in his glory. I am ruined. I am undone. Take me out of here. Why are you undone? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. My eyes just beholding of the Christ in your sinful state, you'll be like, take me away from here because this holiness that I behold is too much for me to take in. Is too much. And Isaiah was a righteous person by any means that you can think of, humanly speaking. He was the prophet of Israel. He would have been the most righteous of people in the time, in his time. But when he behold or beheld of the glory of the Lord, he's like, I am so undone. I am so ruined. Take me out of here. And even the holy angels cover their eyes and feet and night and day proclaim of his holiness. They do not rest. They sing, cover their feet and their eyes. Because they cannot behold the holiness of him that we have to deal with. And to young Timothy, this is what Paul said. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 12 to 16. Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I aid you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate 
that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And I wanted you to see verse 16, dwell or dwelling in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. You get zebbed by the holiness. And to Moses, let's go to Exodus 33, verse 17 to 20. This is Moses with God. And Moses thinks that he may want to see the face of God. He wants to see the face of God. He's curious. I'll be curious too. In verse 17, Moses records and says, So the Lord said to Moses, I'll also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. That is Moses. Show me your glory. Then he said, That's God. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. You may remember that from Romans 9. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. No man shall see my face and live. Joe Biden could not say that. We always see his face and we leave. <laughs> he has no power to do anything. But this is the God that we are dealing with. We do not and could not just walk in with our flip-flops like we are going to Walmart and say, here I am. And yet the gospel comes and says, Christ has made peace for us with his blood. Christ has made a way for us to access God. We are in a state of a, an irrevocable reconciliation. And we have been given an unfettered privilege of approach. A confident approach to the person of the highest rank, God himself. So this is a very big deal, like a really big deal, that we have been granted access to the person, to the being of highest rank, freely. 
And this access is in and through Christ. And it is this Christ who has caused us to stand in this grace. And that to say all the redeemed have a standing because naturally we do not have a standing. The standing is not because of the strength of our own legs. We stand in the strength of the legs of another. So we have a standing and righteousness that causes us to stand before God. Otherwise, our natural state would be to be counted among the fallen. The fallen do not have a standing with God, not naturally. So all the elect have a standing here and now because of Christ, because of God's grace. A standing caused by the blood of Christ. And this is the message that many professing Christians do not understand and, to be honest, do not want to hear because it makes nothing of their own running, of their own obedience. They are quick to run to their own obedience every time the righteousness of Christ is spoken of as the only true righteousness. They do not want to dwell in the knowledge of Christ alone even for a minute. They want to hear about themselves. They want you to talk about themselves on how they can become good parents, good husbands and wives and those kind of things. That kind of religion people love. They love that how they gave up something to be righteous, gave up some chocolate for righteousness. (laughs) I wish it was that simple. But Paul says there is the saved rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See this connection. The redeemed rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because they have peace with God. And they have peace with God because God justified them from all things by the faithfulness of Christ. We have been justified from every sin that you can conceive of. So the peace of the gospel is not speaking to an absence of trouble in this world. It is speaking to the absence of enmity between you and God. No matter the circumstances. Sin may disturb your peace, but it won't be able to remove the peace. The hope of the glory of God is the revelation of Christ. Christ Jesus is the glory of God and the hope of the believer. Let's hear from Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 about the glory or the hope of glory 
Colossians 1, 24 to 27. Colossians 1, 24 to 27, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is in the church, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To his saints, His elect God has revealed the mystery that was hidden from ages and generations. The mystery here is not saying something that is difficult to understand. It is saying, the Greek word is masterion. It means something that cannot be known apart from being initiated into. So it's cultish language. You have to be part of the cult. That's exactly. Only those who have been initiated into a cult really understand what that cult is all about. So the mystery of Christ has to be initiated. To you and I, we have to be initiated into it by God. God has to will it for us to be included in the revelation of that ministry, of that mystery. And Paul says, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, even among us the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that is to say, the matter of hearing, of understanding and receiving gospel truth is a matter of revelation by God, not of man's own learning. One cannot learn themselves into this mystery. It is impossible. God has to initiate us. He has to teach us. He has to open the understanding. He has to give us the Holy Spirit to give us the truth of this and conviction of it. But the hope of glory is Christ Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians 4. 16 to 18. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul says our afflictions are light and are momentary, which means they'll come to an end. Whatever season you are going through of affliction, it has an end end date. But they have a purpose. They work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, immeasurable. The afflictions are not random. They are designed by God himself, whichever way they come. And in light of that, Paul continued still in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, and says, While we do not look at the things which are sin, but at the things which are not sin. In other words, faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not sin. So the believer, even as they are undergoing the afflictions. They do not look at the things which are sin. They look at the things that are not sin. For the things which are sin are temporal. But the things which are not sin are eternal. They are spiritual. And those things are Christ. And so the better way to deal with affliction is to look heavenward. Yeah? Paul is saying the better way to deal with affliction is to look heavenward. And the afflictions are necessary to cause us to have a heavenly perspective. In Africa, I know this for sure from Zimbabwe. Some mothers win their children by putting hot sauce on their breasts. Okay? It afflicts the kid and they stop breastfeeding. And that you say, afflictions are God's hot sauce on the breast of the world for us to get wind of putting hope in this world. Ella and I once went to an Indian re- restaurant. I think I've mentioned this story before. We went for lunch. We had worked some Saturday morning and afternoon, and we said, okay, I don't think we're going to have time to cook. Let's just go and eat at a restaurant, Indian restaurant. And if you know anything about Indian food, (laughs) even what they call mild is very hot. They gave us some yogurt to help with the burning. I even ordered some more yogurt. But I think I ended up just eating more yogurt than the food. And by that, I was eternally weaned from going to 
Indian restaurants. But you get the point. <laughs> and that to say, if you had a 300 million dollar yacht, heaven would be the last thing on your mind. You had the most excellent health, you had a ton of money in the bank, self-made man, you would not consider heaven, you would not consider Jesus. You would spend much of your life swimming with the sharks, literally in the seas and metaphorically on Wall Street, right? Making money makes sense. That's what they say. Making money makes sense. But the experience of every believer here and now is that they fall short of the glory of God. They live in a contradiction of what God says they are. They live in frustration of their flesh, the weakness of their flesh, in frustration because of the things of the world. But the time is coming when they shall have full participation in the glory of Christ. Full participation in the glory of Christ. Let's go to Philippians 3. Verse 10 to 11. Philippians 3, verse 10 to 11. Paul said, speaking to the matter of righteousness and not having confidence in the flesh and all the things that he initially thought as a Jew would recommend him to God as a Hebrew, as a Benjamite, circumcision, and all those wonderful things that he spoke of. And his own obedience to the law, which after the revelation of the gospel, he said all those things were what? Were done. They were done and they were lost. But then he says, in the matter of life and righteousness, he would not come before God on his own righteousness according to the law, but by the righteousness which is by the faithfulness of Christ. Okay? And in that righteousness then, he continues and says in verse 10, my aim is to know him. My aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection. To experience the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings and to be like him in his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. By any means. And that means is Christ. So the hope of the believer is for them to be fully conformed to the resurrection of Christ. To the image of Christ in holiness and righteousness and finally put off the weakness of this flesh and become incorruptible through the resurrection. So this flesh is only going to be raised in power by the resurrection of Christ. That's the only way. It's going to have strength. It's going to have power. It's going to have 
true righteousness and experience it. So we shall be partakers of the glory that shall be revealed. Second Thessalonians 2, let's go there. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God caused the elect to himself by the gospel. He chose us from the beginning by his grace for salvation. He chose us. He did the choosing. And the choosing was to a particular end. It was for salvation. And that salvation was to come to us through Sanctification by the Spirit, and that does not mean being made righteous by the Spirit in progressive sanctification. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. It's being set apart by the Spirit. Being set apart by the Spirit as he testifies of Christ Jesus. That is how we are separated by the Spirit sanctified by the Spirit, we are set apart by the Holy Spirit testimony of Christ in us. So there's no talking of a revival by the Spirit of God where there's no conversation about being chosen from the beginning for salvation. That's what the Spirit testifies of. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ by the giving of the truth of faith and repentance towards Jesus. So people cannot just be in a building day in and day out and they're supposed to be the Spirit of God and that Spirit is silent about Jesus. It's impossible. So God uses gospel preaching for calling his children home, calling them to himself. And none who were chosen to salvation shall perish because they were appointed to salvation. We were not appointed to God's wrath. None shall perish. Not because of their sin, they shall not perish because they were appointed to life. And the calling which is through the gospel is to the end that the elect, the saints, would obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you are going to obtain. That's what God purposed from the beginning, that you would obtain 
the glory of the person of Christ. That is the person that God really wants you to be. God loves the person of Christ so much that he does not have enough of him in that regard. And so all the elect are conformed to be like Jesus Christ, if you want to speak it that way. We are conformed to the image of Christ and to obtain the glory of Christ. Such a prospect then, if properly understood, should be cause for much joy and encouragement to God's people. And that to say, there's a glorious future in God's presence for all of God's people. Because this flesh is failing, man. The flesh is failing. The world is failing. The economy is failing. The politics is failing. Everything is failing. We see the world coming unglued. And our natural reaction is to try and duct tape it into place. Get me some duct tape. Go to Home Depot and buy all the duct tape there is. But we can't do that. This is exactly as God wants things to be. This ship must keep sailing to its appointed end. And the hot sauce must remain on the breast of the world for God's people. And men and women must fill up the measure of their sin. As God says, the iniquity of the Amorites says, must come to its fullness. The iniquity of the Amorites must come to its fullness. Romans 5 verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So one of the benefits of your justification before God and the peace you have with him, the privileged approach that you have with him, the standing that you have the standing in grace, which means standing that cannot be taken away from you, is that we bust. We exult. We rejoice in tribulations. We rejoice and should rejoice in sufferings because we have a different perspective of how the story ends. We're looking at things from a different horizon from people who do not know these things. So God has made known to us our standing before him so that we use that as fuel to power us through the many troubles of this life. When it seems like everything is coming apart, we lose everything that we have. But at some point you want to lose it. That's why they bury you. <laughs> You're going to go on your deathbed if God would remind you 
of all these wonderful things. And that is to say, this life has issues. It has a lot of problems. I talk to a lot of people on a daily basis, weekly basis. I talk to young, middle-aged and old and the elderly. I talk to single, divorced and widowed. And everyone has issues. They're dealing with issues. I'm also dealing with issues. It is not just the young who are the young and the restless, but even the older ones and the elderly too. The young are restless about life, about career, about saving enough money, about starting a family. They have been told to dream on. Your life is, your whole life is ahead of you, they say. But the life that they speak of is not the life that is in Christ. It is not the life that glories in Christ. They are speaking of the life that is only 30, 40 years ahead of them. But that is not life. It is just a vapor. I can tell you that if you talk to Sister Kelly, she has moments that she wonders, how, I think I was 15 years old just two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm talking the truth. How did I get here? And you already see that, okay, I'm getting to the other side of things. The things that used to excite about this life, they kind of slowly just dying. I'm just taking along. Okay, because the Lord is keeping me. The many crosses to carry in this department, lots of frustrations. I speak to brothers and sisters who have lost dear loved ones, lost their child, mother, brother, sister. They're dealing with how to move on from their loss. And I just learned a few days ago that a dear sister in the Lord, Teresa Skepo, was recently called home by the Lord. Ella and I have known the couple since 2009. They live in Georgia. Her husband, Elder Skepo, has been very useful to me spiritually over the many years in the matter of learning and teaching about Christ, the discipline of how you teach the gospel, to take it seriously with every message. So be praying for him and the church family around them for God's comfort and peace. But they are dealing with a loss, even though they have the answer. At some point, they're going to come to a resolution because they know the truth. I speak to the elderly who see that they do not have many years left to live. They're scared of the experience of the death process, of not having the proper care and support. I speak to some who are dealing with sickness of their loved ones, trying to take care of them, 
taking care of their mothers and fathers, having to leave their families and move in with their parent or parents to try and help them. Parents, old parents who have been incapacitated by sickness, Alzheimer's, dementia, all kinds of afflictions of the flesh. Very frustrating things to deal with. And it is exhausting and stressful to having to do this over and over and everyone wishes everything said and done that the Lord would just come today. And Paul says, yes, believers have peace with God. But how should we react to these afflictions of life? Because even as unbelievers, we are not spared of these issues. The Holy Spirit says, verse 5, verse 3 of Romans 5, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. No. <laughs> that does not make sense. Why should we glory in tribulations? We should rejoice in bad days. That would make sense. Rejoice in birthdays and graduation parties. I thought we should cry out loud in tribulations. That's what makes sense. No, God says, laugh out loud, not cry out loud. Rejoice. And the Greek word translated as tribulations or suffering is thlipsis, T-H-I-T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, thlipsis. And it means pressure. It means a pressing together. It denotes or speaks to affliction as arising from cramping circumstances. You are being put in a vice-like grip, and there's a cramping that is happening. And the sisters know a whole lot more about cramps than I do, and they know that the worst of them are very disabling. So issues of life put you in a narrow, confined space. And in that narrow and confined space is the cramping. But that's all you're doing if you have something on a vice. You're narrowing the space. You're cramping. You're pressing together. That's the only way you can press things together, by reducing the space between them. And Paul is saying God is he who confines our space by pressing us with cramping circumstances and it is not because of any particular sin that you have done. This is just what God does. God is not bringing tribulations because of our sin. He's not bringing sickness 
not necessarily in response to a particular sin that you have done. The matter of sin has already been dealt with on the cross. So that is not the conversation. This cramping is for something else. It is for discipline. It is for growth and maturity. Here, Apostle, Apostle Paul's testimony of his own pressing. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not Christ. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be made, may be manifested in our body. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure in earthen vessels is Christ. We are the earthen vessels. And we have treasure contained in common jars of clay. And that is speaking to our unworthiness apart from the treasure that God has put in us. Otherwise, naturally, we are just, what? Earthen vessels, common clay jars. And Paul says, <laughs> we are hard-pressed on every side. That's the cramping. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. How is it that you are in the vice and the vice is being turned, hard-pressed, but net, and yet you are not crushed? We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. What Paul is saying is, it seems that God is always taking me to the very edge. And when I am at the edge of being Christ, somehow I don't get Christ. Just when I'm on the edge of falling over, I don't fall over. Just when I'm on the edge of giving up, almost giving up, I don't give up. Why? Because God is behind it. He knows how far to go as he is pressing. But God presses hard on every side so that the hidden treasure of Christ may be made manifest. That is why you will not be destroyed by the pressing. It seems like, as I said, you will drown. You will be finished by another trial. Yet, you just keep going. Because God is doing it. I'll give you an example. 
To get some orange juice, one has to squeeze it. You have to apply pressure to it. And the reason for squeezing is so that you can get out of the orange what is useful to you. The juice. And that is the best that the orange can give you. And you get it by squeezing it. And God squeezes the juice from us because he knows he has deposited something good in us, in the person of Christ. So God gets his juice through trials, the pressing, so that he can create in us such things as are useful to him. So, knowing that it is God who justified and that it is he who presses us in confined spaces, afflicts us with difficult things. We should know that God is producing that by pressing to get useful fruit to him. And what is that like? What is it that God loves to eat or drink from those that he has redeemed? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And by that, that is saying, naturally, that's not who we are. Tribulation, the pressing, the trouble, the burdens, the difficult circumstances, the persecution triggers off a sequence of things, a chain reaction of things, with one thing leading to the other and being necessary for the production or the making of the next attribute in the chain of things. And that to say tribulation is the gymnasium for producing these qualities. First, it produces perseverance and that is a steadfastness in the face of being praised and endurance. And the Greek word that is translated as perseverance is patience. Sorry, is hupomon. Perseverance and patience are essentially saying the same thing. They are the English versions of the same Greek word. Is hupomon, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E. And it means to bear a burden cheerfully. To calmly and cheerfully remain under a burden. To be patient even under trials and misfortunes. 
to hold fast, to endure. So you are enduring the affliction, the circumstance, in a cheerful manner. In a way that does not give away that you are dealing with anything. And God says, you cannot do that by yourself. He has to cause it. James says to the scattered Jewish Christians who were being persecuted in James 1, let's go to James 1, 2 to 4. He says, verse 2 of James 1, my brethren, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. When you find money in the bank, <laughs> no, when you fall into various trials. Consider all joy. And all joy there is full joy or unmixed joy. In other words, let your joy be complete and pure. When you enter into various trials, Various trials, various is variegated trials. It means trials of different colors. As some plants have variegated leaves, leaves of different colors to accentuate their beauty. Look at the flowers, go to Home Depot laws. You see these flowers that have different colors, they have some Yellow, some purple, some kind of pink, some green mixed in the same. And that's variegated. Variegated trials accentuate your beauty. And this is the reason for rejoicing. Verse 3, James 1, knowing that the testing of your faith, not in a tempting way, but the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the trials, the tribulations, the pressing is for the testing of your faith as in a fire to prove that it is the genuine article. And this testing produces patience. The patience that has you exalting or glorying in your completeness in Christ alone when you have been tried and tried. You want glory in that you stop sinning. You glory in Christ alone. Naturally, we are impatient people. That's why we invented fast food and microwaves. Yeah? And dishwashers. Because we just want to push a button and get things moving. 
Naturally, we are crybabies. Mommy, bring me the milk bottle here and now, or else I'm going to cause a stink and throw a tantrum so that the whole world will see that you are such a bad mom. <laughs> God says, no, we have to graduate from that. And the way he does it is by bringing about pressing circumstances. The patient, the patience pleases him. That is why it, he brings it about. Because patience causes us to trust in him. God wants us to trust that he is faithful to himself and to every promise that he has made. But this perseverance also triggers a whole lot of other things in the chain. Verse 4 of Romans 5. And perseverance, character. Proven character. And that to say tribulations have a seasoning effect on God's people. If you are anybody who eats What's the name? Venison? Wild animal meat and stuff. If you just cook it as is, it has a wild, a wildness taste to it. So how do you remove the wildness? You season it. You marinate it. Maybe overnight, depending on what you're using, maybe a few days. You are removing the wildness of it. And such is the pressing. It's removing the wildness in us. Okay? So even materials, the strength of materials are tested. They are proved when the materials are put under a stress test. And if it passes, then it is useful material, say, to build a foundation. You can't just use any kind of material for foundation. But God works all these things in his people because, as I said, naturally, these are not present in us. And the suffering deepens or strengthens the believer's character and this seasoned character produces hope that God will do what he promised to do. That God will see them through, not just in this trial, but in all things that he has promised and given in Christ. You're going to lose money. It's going to be purposeful. God is going to empty your bank. He's going to do it. Live long enough, it's going to happen. And then he's going to prove to you that he's faithful. He's going to give it back to you. Then he's going to empty it again. <laughs> and the more that he 
does and takes you through that cycle, the more you trust him. When something happens like that, you're going to lose your job. And then you're going to wonder, okay, what are we going to do with all these bills we have to pay? And then he's going to show you that he's faithful. He's going to find a way for you to make your payments. And then you're going to find another job. And then you're going to praise him. And then you're going to lose that job. And then you're going to go through the cycle. In the meantime, you didn't lose your house. You're still the same person. Actually, at the end of it, you may end up with more than what you started off with. It's just God doing it all. So you want to have that perspective. Because the whole world, when things like that happen, they don't know what to do. They go crazy. And Paul is saying, no, there's no need for that. You have to trust God. He will meet your every need, but he's going to have to teach you. Okay? I think Hebrews 12 has a very good and better commentary on this. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us or besets us. And that sin is unbelief. The context is speaking to unbelief. It's not speaking to just sin in general. The context of the book of Hebrews is that you have Hebrew Christians who are toying with wanting to go back to Moses, to the law, because they're suffering. They're suffering persecution for having come to Christ and having been excluded from the whole Jewish economy of religion. So they're being persecuted and they want to go back. And the writer of Hebrews is laboring by the Holy Spirit to say all these fathers of yours, these very important people in Jewish history, in Hebrew history, they were considered righteous. They got a good report from God because of faith. And so, be careful. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, which is unbelief. Because of unbelief, many died. Many did not enter into the promised land. He argues that in the previous chapters, I think chapters 3, 4, 5, they're about in Hebrews. They did not enter because of unbelief. So unbelief is still the subject, at least in that particular context of the sin that ensnares us. Okay? So, with that understanding, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run as those who compete in the Olympics. That's the language. And how do we run? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, see, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He endured the trials. He 
endured the shame. He endured the pressing, the tribulations. But he had the joy in mind that was set before him. That's what caused him to overcome. Despising the shame, the cross was a shameful experience of being condemned as a criminal from both the Jewish side of things, both the Jewish side of things, the law side of things said, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. They've been cursed of God. And for the Roman side of things, only Romans who were extreme criminals were hung. Even more, mostly those who had no Roman citizenship. The criminal with no rights of citizenship. Despising the shame. Christ did not say, okay, the Romans are going to think badly about me and the Jews are going to think badly about me, so I'm not going to go on the cross. He despised the shame. Because he understood greater and better things. The joy that was set before him. And on account of that, and they sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is glorified on account of the suffering that he went through. That's the end of all these things. So the end of all the suffering that the Christians may experience here and now is that they are going to be glorified together with Christ. So they have to set their mind as Christ set his mind on the joy that was to come. So the believer shall follow that pattern of Christ on their way to glory. So all those qualities that Paul is speaking of, of patience, of character and hope are of the nature of Christ. They are being formed in the believer because of the Christ who is in them. They are being formed because of the treasure that is in them. These are the qualities of Christ. And they're needful for the believer's surgeon or surgeon in this world. And the writer of Hebrews says, look to Christ for a proper interpretation of your situation and the attitude that you should have. In the matter of humility, Paul in Philippians 2 says, have this mind that Jesus had in the matter of humility. Even though he was God, he did not make the matter of being equal with God something to glory in. He could have caused a mighty show in Palestine and say, see, I am the God of eternity. But he humbled himself. So in the matter of dealing with trying circumstances, again, have Christ as your pattern. Look unto Jesus as your pattern. Hear this, verse 3 of Hebrews 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
Jesus the righteous endured such hostility from sinners. You are enduring or you are just experiencing hostility from other sinners, from people like you. <laughs> Jesus is the pattern. Why? Because tribulations do really make us weary and discouraged. And hearing about Christ and his attitude towards suffering and resulting glory and resulting victory is the template or solution to dealing with our own present predicaments looking unto him, not to Old Testament figures. Because the writer of Hebrews has labored a whole chapter in Hebrews 11, talking about the example of how the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, you name them, and how they got a good report. But then he says, you are not looking to them. Because they all looked to the one Christ. Christ, not Abraham, not Moses, is the author and finisher. He is the perfecter of that faith that endures trials to the end. Triumphant faith. Because our final victory is with Christ, not with the Old Testament saints, not with Oprah and Dr. Phil. <laughs> verse 5, Romans 5, that's our last verse. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured. A believer's hope is not hung on campaign promises of the politicians in Washington, D.C. It is hung on God's promises and faithfulness in Christ. God did not cause Jesus to be ashamed. He raised him from the dead and even glorified him and set him on the right hand of power of majesty on high. And the believer who has trusted in Christ shall likewise not be ashamed. This hope, this God, this Christ does not disappoint. Because there's nothing that gets in the way of what he has determined to do. There's nothing that frustrates what God determined to do. There's nothing that's going to take you away or out of what he has promised to give you. He does not ever disappoint. We're just coming out of Valentine's. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And a lot of people were disappointed. They did not get the chocolate and the flowers. They did not get to smell the bees. But that's not with God. 
God does not disappoint. There's nothing that frustrates him. God has poured his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is he who mediates, who communicates God's love towards the believers. The Holy Spirit has been given as the seal and guarantee a deposit of God's commitment to finish what he started. The Holy Spirit is a seal in every believer. And the seal is saying what? Possession. God owns you. It authenticates what God is promising to do. The seal is speaking to ownership. Because the seal, when we address an envelope with the name and address, the only person who is legally required to open the envelope is the one to whom it's addressed. God has put his seal on every believer by way of the Holy Spirit to prove ownership of the person, to authenticate that he owns the person, and Christ alone has the right to open the book with the seven seals, Christ alone. For you to lose your salvation, there has to be an unsealing. And there's no one who is able to do that. There's no one who is qualified to unseal anything that God has sealed. Christ alone. So the Holy Spirit has been given to communicate to us God's love to speak to us those things which have been freely given us. The guarantee to say more is coming. This is just an initial deposit, but more is coming. And the reality of God's love in a believer's heart gives them, or should give them the assurance that the believers hope in God and his promise of glory is not misplaced and will not fail. That's what the Holy Spirit testifies of, that your hope is not misplaced. Because if it were not for the Holy Spirit, you would not be wanting to hear about Christ anymore. Like, ah, I'm not really sure about that thing. <laughs> And this is all coming from the reality of our standing in Christ, being justified by his blood and having peace with God. And there's much to say about the matter of the believer's experience, the matter of suffering. But what we see as a pattern, when the Holy Spirit teaches 
the believer's struggles, you always hear the gospel underneath it. The gospel is there to remind you that it takes a higher seat than your struggles. Paul is going to expound more of that in Romans 8. There's quite a bit of teaching of those things, so I won't be doing a part two of this. I think we're just going to get along and keep moving, and the Lord will give us understanding. But I believe this gives us what God has given me to share this morning, a fair understanding of what God would have us to know and understand and appreciate without ever exhausting the topic because it is impossible to exhaust the things of God. But it gives us some grounding, some perspective of how we are supposed to interpret things when they happen to us. These are not tests of, okay, my being saved, the Pentecostals will say, oh, you're suffering because you don't have enough faith. Maybe you're not saved. You're getting sick because you're not saved. It's all foolishness. They don't know what they're talking about. So God says, rejoice in the Lord always, even in tribulations. Again, I say rejoice. Amen. We are done. Unless if you want part two. <laughs> All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the words that you've given us to give us perspective, understanding of the things that we go through, even as those redeemed of Christ, that even though we possess a standing with you, and we have the righteousness of Christ, and we have peace, fully reconciled, we still go through sufferings, we still go through oppressing, cramping circumstances, which are not aimless, but things that you work in your people, to work perseverance, patience in them, and character, and hope, a hope that does not disappoint, because the Holy Spirit has been given us, to show us and remind us, teach us of the love of God towards us. We thank you for all those who have listened. I pray that they will find one or two words that will be of encouragement to them. We honor you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.